Welcome to the Strength Rehab Podcast. Join your hosts, Raul Axmayer and Brandon Parker, as they discuss the latest information regarding the health and fitness industries. Topics include sports performance, physical rehab, and of course, general health. Remember, this is the podcast where science meets practice. What is up, everybody? This week on the podcast, we had Karina on, and she talked about how she navigates the online nutrition space. It was amazing. Check it out. And just a reminder that we are sponsored by Built by Strength Supplements. They release nothing but the best, and they're third-party tested. And if you have not given us a rate or a subscribe, please do. It helps the podcast tremendously. So tell us your story. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so uh, my name is Karina Naboa. I am an online nutrition and training coach with Team LocoFit LLC. Um, I've worked in the industry as a coach and kind of also as like an administrative assistant for like seven or eight years. So I've worked with a lot of bodybuilders. I've worked with a lot of powerlifters and also a lot of gen pop um, sort of people. And then I'm also currently a master student in the uh, exercise science program at the University of South Florida, where I um, hope, am hoping to go for my PhD after. Nice. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. And just a very brief um, history. I think it would also be important for me to note that I also used to be a competitive bodybuilder. I competed in powerlifting um, very briefly and currently am uh, trying to get into CrossFit. So I have Ooh. what I call like fitness ADHD or ADD. I like can't, <laughs> I can't pick one. So yeah, that's kind a of a bit my, of everything. Yeah, just, my brief background. I just want to start off by saying go Bulls, go University of South Florida. Yeah, yeah, I love that place. Uh, yeah. I just want to know, where, what's the origin story? Why nutrition? Because it could, to some people, nutrition is kind of boring, but other people's it's their life. So I'm just curious what your origin story is. Yeah, I guess um, I grew up pretty much being an athlete my whole life. I've played soccer from the age of seven till about 20. And then it was around 20 where I got like really burnt out, but I discovered bodybuilding and powerlifting. And that's kind of what got me into um really getting interested in how I can use nutrition to manipulate performance and body composition um, when I really got into more aesthetically based sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the turning point. And okay, I need to really pay attention to what I put into my body. Like how can I manipulate different macronutrients and micronutrients to essentially get the result I want? So when it comes down to uh, pre-nutrition interest to now, what does that diet change look like? What were you eating prior to what you're doing now? Yeah, so before I would pretty much eat whatever what that was kind of like labeled as healthy, but it was mainly, you know, like granola bars, um, a lot of like sugary fruit, like sugary fruit drinks and smoothies and things like that. Whereas um, now I base a lot of my nutrition around like getting enough protein, really paying attention to different micronutrients. Um, But I am definitely, I think right now I'm actually more flexible than I was before. Mm. I used to be like very scared of eating specific sugars and things like that. So I do follow a flexible dieting approach. However, when it comes to performance and kind of making sure I'm in a comfortable body composition, I pay a lot more attention to macronutrient intake um, specifically around training and things like that. What, what's the end goal with the PhD? You want to get into research, academia, or? 
Why? Yeah, so my goal would get into would be to get into research. Um, I, I think I would like to do a little bit of teaching as well. Um, but my primary goal is to essentially hopefully have my own lab one day where I can run research through. Nice. Right on. Now, you're at University of South Florida, so you're most likely getting taught by Bill Campbell. And he's, he's really big on protein anchoring and then kind of letting everything be a little bit more flexible. Do you take that approach and do you do that with your clients? Um, so for me, yes, I would say right now I'm protein anchoring simply because I'm not tracking very diligently. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas specific points in my lifetime where I feel like I need to, you know, dial it in as far as like trying to lose some body fat and things like that, I will track everything. But right now I would say I'm more protein anchored, meaning I really just care about getting enough protein in and wherever my carbs and fats land is wherever they land, depending on how I feel. Um, I don't take that approach with all of my clients though, simply because especially it would depend on their starting point. If someone is not familiar with tracking macros, then I would say, yeah, let's just focus on protein and start with that single macronutrient to track. Um, because when you throw, you know, trying to track macros all day, every day to someone who has never done it before, it can be very overwhelming. So making sure that that starting point looks different for everyone is going to be very helpful. So some people will say, let's just track calories. Some people will say, let's just pay attention to protein. Some people are ready to kind of jump into tracking all three macros. But I would say that protein is the cornerstone of nutrition for a lot of my clients because a lot of them are bodybuilding athletes. A few of them are powerlifting athletes. And then some of them are, you know, people just wanting to build muscle to attain a body composition that's favorable for them. So protein is going to be super important for that. So when protein is equated, do you have a personal preference for fats or carbs uh, in regards to performance and why? So that is highly dependent on the individual as well. And, um, you know, a lot of my mentors at USF hate the word nuances, um, but <laughs> I don't know what else to say, but there, it, there are a lot of uh, nuances. Um, essentially, I like to go by whatever the client prefers, simply because it's going to be easier for them to adhere to, right? Mm -hmm. um, I find that most people do a lot better performance-wise as far as like increasing strength um, with higher carbs than higher fats, especially when it comes to around training. I typically say my rule of thumb for kind of tailoring your nutrition around training is, you know, making sure you are keeping carbs relatively high pre and post. And then if you need it, depending on how intense your workouts are, having some intro workout as well. Um, and I personally like to keep fats lower around training because fats are very calorie dense, meaning they're going to take a really long time to digest. They're going to slow that down your digestion before and kind of during and It's typically uncomfortable for some people to have pre and intra workout. And then I pretty much like to speed up the post workout nutrition recovery. So I like to keep fats lower so that carbs and protein can be quickly digested. Um, but some people actually don't feel really great with having a ton of carbs before and after simply due to kind of that insulin spike and crash. Right. So some people actually feel much better with moderate or higher fat and lower carb. Um, but again, that really just depends on the person. However, the majority of people that I work with prefer carbohydrates, um, higher carbohydrates over uh, fats. Now, typically speaking, when it comes to carbohydrates, um, at least when I'm talking to clients, we want to target somewhat of the simple, the simple carbohydrates because you want them to digest relatively fast. But we are balancing on that, that 
teeter-totter of what if they do crash? Do you, mm-hmm. do you maybe say something along the lines of let's get a little bit of simple, and a little bit of complex, or do you just kind of say, find some carbs you like and eat them? So for the most part, I like to have clients kind of mix that simple and complex. However, I find that depending on the timing, like I said, there's so many nuances or, mm-hmm. you know, things that can um, come into play here. It's a multivariate equation. Depending on how far out before training you are eating, say you have a simple sugar pre-workout meal like two hours before, you're likely going to crash before you get into training. Um, in that sense, if you have to eat a little bit further out, I would try to get a slower digesting carbohydrate. But if you are someone who only has like 30 minutes to an hour to train after you eat, then I would say we would want something a little bit quicker. And typically people won't crash during training. Um, But if they are experiencing that crash, that's when I would say let's add in some intra-workout carbs to kind Mm -hmm. of bring you back up. Um, But again, I think timing plays a big role and essentially just how sensitive people are to carbohydrates as well. Now I'm also, so before I actually ask this next question, I'm just curious. Uh, so when you say sensitive to carbohydrates, would that just be, can you just elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah. So some people are uh, much better at meta- metabolizing carbohydrates quickly than others. Um, myself, for example, I am not the best carbohydrate metabolizer, whereas other people metabolize carbohydrates um, a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. So essentially, I guess how they respond I'm touching more on the base of how like quickly they can metabolize it um, mm-hmm. and how quickly essentially they digest, if that makes better sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. I, because when there's another, we, we were talking to somebody else earlier and they were talking about how they might be carb sensitive when they uh, are going through a depletion phase for a bodybuilding yeah. show. And then when they eat the carbs, they essentially blow up and they look very full. So yeah. I was just curious if that, you know, same vernacular, but different meaning. So I just wanted to clarify on that. Yeah. When, when someone is super depleted of carbohydrates and they add carbohydrates in, if you're someone who is very lean, yeah, you're going to look a lot fuller because with each gram of carbohydrate, it carries three grams of water. So you're also holding a lot more water. And that's a very common peaking strategy for contest prep athletes who are about to get on stage. They manipulate carbs and water, you know, that last week to make them look fuller. But yeah, they're definitely um, also correct in saying that and you're going to be a lot more sensitive to carbohydrates if you haven't had them in a while for sure now that brings me like like you you triggered the words and now i'm thinking about (laughs) it Uh, um there's there's different protocols when it comes to cutting for a show um typically speaking the the general guideline i always see referenced a lot is you want to take the fat loss slow because you want to preserve muscle and that's also a reason why you're going to increase your overall protein intake I'm just curious the protocol that you may take with a client to prepare them for a show when it comes to cutting their overall weight. Yeah, so when it comes to contest prep, um, my number one goal is to maintain as much muscle mass as possible and lose weight on as many calories as we possibly can. Because when we cut calories too quickly, your body is going to respond in a lot of ways that are typically negative and not great for you to sustain long-term. So yes, I would advocate for slow conservative fat loss phases um, simply because say, you know, you eat 3000 calories a day. If you cut, you know, those calories in half right away and maintain that for, you know, like a 12 to 20 week prep, you're going to lose a lot of muscle in the process. But if we kind of take a slower approach, more conservative, again, calories week to week and carbs week to week are going to 
differ for everyone. Um, I would say, you know, just trying to make, trying to lose on the minimal effective dose because that way your body is going to maintain more muscle with more calories. Um, and you're not going to see a lot of the negative effects, um, early on that we kind of just want to save for the very end because we don't really want to maintain that unsustainable, uh, leaner body composition for too, too long because there are a lot of other things that come along with it. You know, psychological issues that might come with, you know, struggling with being hungry and starving and cold all the time. Um, a few hormonal adaptations that happens with being underfed for long periods of time, especially in women and men too. Um, but you know, we will face a lot of like, uh, females losing their period for a long time after getting too lean. So my protocol is always the slower, the better. However, at the same time, there has to be that happy medium of, okay, I don't want you dieting for 60 weeks. We have to be losing at a rate that, you know, is going to be getting it done and over with, but not so fast so that we don't um, sacrifice muscle in the process. So you obviously care about sustainability adherence. Um, and in my opinion, it is one of the most important factors uh, to have a client-centered approach. So besides having a client-centered approach, what you think people should look like or people should look for in an online coach? Because there's just... There's like two big camps in the fitness industry. You're either yeah. evidence-based, which nowadays everybody uses it, and there's just so much BS, like trainers saying, oh, you're just going to eat salad, you're not going to eat carbs. Like, What yeah. should people look for to find a good online coach, in your opinion? Yeah, so I guess I'll start out kind of with like an anecdotal story of you know, what like a bad coach looks like with my horror story experience, which got me into coaching myself. So I got into my first bodybuilding show when I was like 18, 19 years old. Um, and I found this local coach who essentially put me on a plan that was the same plan that he put everyone else on. Um, he essentially pretty much told me to do X number of hours of cardio a week, um, which was essentially the same exact plan that he gave another girl, right? So it's not tailored at all. And then, you know, when I was kind of giving him information on biofeedback on like, I'm literally fainting when I wake up in the mornings, um, I don't feel good, things like that. He basically just said, well, you know, this is like bodybuilding, you just kind of have to stick it out to the end. Um, and didn't really tell me why anything was happening or why we weren't making any changes and things like that. So I would say um, coaches who essentially don't have any evidence and or don't have any specific reasoning um, for the way they do things when you ask them, those are not good coaches. Coaches who do not tailor nutrition to their specific client, I also don't think that's a good coach, clearly because you know, your metabolism is specific to you based on your genetics, based on your dieting history, based on your training age, all of those things come into play. Um, so I think what a good coach looks like is someone who is evidence-based. Now, that's not to say I think that people who have a PhD are the only people who should be coaches or people who have a master's are the only people who should be coaches. Education definitely is important, but I think that there is also an art to being a coach and it's not just taking from a textbook. Yep. Um, but I would say that wherever you can find scientific evidence and apply that to practice, that's going to be the most optimal way, I think, um, to practice as a coach. So aside from finding someone who can give you the reasoning and the scientific 
you know, basis for why they're doing what they're doing, that is a good coach. Um, a good coach is also someone who would welcome those questions saying, you know, feel free to ask me why we're adding cardio or why we're taking cardio away. If they don't have, you know, a basis as to why they're doing what they're doing, I wouldn't say that coach exactly knows what they're doing because you don't want to make these manipulations that are, you know, possibly going to hurt you without knowing how they're helping you. Um, and then aside from that, I would say a coach who is going to, you know, make sure that you are taken care of. I've heard uh, a lot of kind of like quote unquote horror stories of other clients who pay coaches anywhere from like 200 to like $500 a month for one word or one sentence responses and taking longer than 24 hours to respond. So um, I really enjoy trying to make my clients' interactions as personal as possible, especially being like an online coach. It's really tough doing that. So I typically respond with like video responses and just taking the time to thoroughly go through all of the data that I've accumulated from that client that week um, and all of the biofeedback. Um, but as far as, you know, an uh, evidence-based coach, I think when you are looking for a coach, making sure that they are using evidence and science and facts to back up their protocols and processes is going to be the most important thing. But like I said, I don't think you need to go find a PhD or someone who has a master's in, you know, these subjects to be a good coach. There are coaches who are at the very top of the bodybuilding industry with zero degrees, but are very knowledgeable because they kind of go out there and teach themselves how to do things and things like that. Um, so hopefully that was clear. I know that was a very yeah. long-winded answer. Definitely. Yeah, no, it was a good re response. I was just going to say what you touched upon with the art of coaching is, is the ability to have like a, a client-centered approach. And you do need a baseline knowledge, whether that's through experience or evidence to be able to make that manipulation towards the, the client's goals, right? right. And um, yeah, I like how you mentioned that because a lot of people either shoot to the top and say, I need a PhD or they go for the guy that has experience, but they could have just been working with genetic freaks that were going to get to the top regardless of their help or not, you know? So you do have to find that midline. Yeah. I feel like evidence-based practice for anything optimized should look like, you know, uh, practice essentially like leading research and research leading practice mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, I don't think that you can take whatever a textbook says and directly apply it to a person who has all of these other variables going on. Um, and you can't also just take, you know, anecdote and ideas to try to apply it to someone as well. There has to be like a good mix of being able to critically think and have that creativity to balance, you know, what the evidence says and how you can apply it to the specific person who has all these different things going on that, you know, isn't kind of a perfect textbook scenario. I definitely think that evidence is, is important because evidence is like the basis of our coaching philosophy, but yeah. in the art is where the magic happens because you can know everything about a textbook, you can know your biochemistry, nutrition, everything, but we got to remember that we're working with humans and not only physiology because science is number physiology anatomy. But if you don't have, you can know all of the evidence, but if you don't have a good relationship with your clients, you're not going to get anywhere. Sure. Yeah. And I think what a lot of people uh, don't really realize is like people will say, well, here's this research article. This is what it says. This is why you should do it. 
But a lot of research is done is in environments that are not like our normal environments. They're done in laboratories. They're done in mice. They're done, you know, with or without all of these external stressors. So yes, absolutely. Look at the evidence and see how you can apply it, but don't kind of live or die by it. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Just like, look, these college students did this, this, and this. Like, I'm a mother of three and I exactly. work two jobs. <laughs> Definitely yeah. not a controlled environment. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, that's perfect. You mentioned something earlier that I would hope for you to expand upon was how diet history could affect your your metabolic rate and your ability to diet with your diet success. Could you expand on that? Yeah, so I'll try to be brief because this is a topic I could talk about for hours, but essentially um, your body will adapt to specific uh, calorie intake restrictive behaviors over time. So say someone who is in their 30s pretty much spent all of their 20s eating 1,200 calories a day. It's going to be really hard for them to you know, lose any excess weight because their body is so adapted to maintaining at 1200 calories. They would essentially have to, you know, go below that, which, you know, it, it depends on the person. But for me, that would be really hard to do because I eat anywhere from like 1800 to 2200 calories a day. Right. Um, but essentially your, your body's just simply going to adapt to whatever caloric intake you are at for a longer period of time. Um, which is why I don't like being in contest prep diets for too long. Because if you, you know, have someone at, you know, a very low intake, their metabolism is going to say, Hey, you know, we got to slow down because this person isn't feeding us enough. We need to slow down our metabolic rate to make sure we have enough energy for all of these other cellular processes, therefore slowing down the metabolic rate. And that always happens anytime you cut calories. But I work with a lot of, you know, um, middle-aged women who have spent a lot of their younger years doing so much cardio, you know, cut, trying to cut calories at every single chance they get. And they pay for it later on because their metabolism is so adapted to just being on these lower intakes that when they try to eat normal for, one, for once, they'll gain weight like that. Um, and so dieting history plays a big role in essentially how easy it is for you to lose or gain weight down the road. Um, and this is super important for me as far as how I apply it to like younger athletes. Do not diet and do not, you know, cut calories if you are in your teens or early 20s. Allow your body to kind of reach its peak as far as, you know, strength um, potential and all of those things and, and wait a little bit to essentially cut calories down the road because you kind of want to take advantage of when your metabolism is at its fastest as metabolism does decline, metabolic rate does decline with age as does muscle mass and things like that. So I tell a lot of like younger athletes just kind of learning from a lot of the middle age uh, clientele that I work with is, you know, let your body like eat as many calories as it needs right now. Don't cut it out too, too early because you'll pay for that later on. Um, and so typically you'll see a lot of, um, when I work with some clients who have like never dieted before, they're just like, I just kind of, you know, ate enough as far as like not cutting calories, not just eating whatever they want as in just eating boxes of pizza all day. But they, they're the ones who have a really easy time kind of going through recomposition phases and losing body fat because their body isn't adapted to being in a deficit for so long. Um, 
and I, I hate like saying this word, but it's essentially like your body's like survival mechanism is when you cut calories for too long, your body's going to say, okay, well, you know, this person's not feeding me enough. We need to slow down our rate to make sure that we have enough to survive and things like that. Hopefully that's clear. Yeah, for sure. What are some, were you going to no, ask? Okay. Uh, what are some techniques or tips and tricks that you use with this, for example, middle-aged women that have uh, I don't like to use this word for, but for these conversation purposes, I'm going to use it to fix their quote unquote broken metabolism. What are some things they, and not only them, like everyone can do to, quote unquote, fix their metabolism. Right. So essentially, um, I guess the other word for fix your metabolism would be to try to simply increase metabolic capacity. And how we would do that is actually, um, it's really hard for most people because I would essentially encourage them to eat more because your metabolism is going to adapt to that higher intake. When someone weighs more, when someone is bigger, when someone is eating more, their metabolic rate is going to be higher. So we essentially work on increasing metabolic capacity. Um, it's, it can be really hard and it can take, you know, a long time for someone depending on, you know, did they spend just a few months in a caloric deficit or did they literally spend like the last three years eating 1100 calories? Um, because then we have some hormonal imbalances that come into play. But I would say for, you know, basic application purposes, I would say, you know, we actually need to stop dieting. And most females, you know, and it's as a female, I understand like their comfort zone is to oftentimes just cut calories, but I would say we actually need to eat more and they'll freak out and we might gain some weight, but that's okay because we need to take that time to try to increase metabolic capacity so that once you're metabolic rate is higher, um, we can work from there to try to lose body fat. But if we try to lose body fat and cut calories from a metabolic rate, that's already pretty low. It's not going to be sustainable. And we're going to continue to essentially elicit all of these negative adaptations that come from not feeding yourself enough for long periods of time. And also resistance training, obviously, because yeah. <laughs> we want to try to put on muscle to increase metabolic rate. Right. Um, but yeah. Yep. It seems like it's a hard sell for people that have been in a long-term deficit. And I'm curious, uh, what does that communication look like? Because not only is this a slow process, but now they're going in the opposite direction of the reason why they're in the deficit in the first place. Yeah. So, and it's absolutely understandable to be scared to go in the other direction because the reason they're dieting is because every time they eat, they gain weight and they say, oh, if I'm gaining weight, you know, obviously that's not working. So let me just continue to cut my calories. Mm -hmm. um, that communication is not easy, but I essentially say, hey, I absolutely understand where you're coming from because I've been there and I know how that feels. But trust me, it's important for us to kind of you know, go in the other direction for your long-term health because you eating, you know, half or a quarter of the amount that you should for the rest of your life is not going to be sustainable. And our goal would be for you to maintain a body composition that you are comfortable with without having to, you know, eat like a rabbit essentially, or eat like a bird. I don't know what people say. <laughs> I like forget what the <laughs> metaphor is, <laughs> but yeah. So essentially I would say, you know, we need to do this kind of short-term discomfort phase where we're going to work on eating a little bit more conservatively. We're not going to like push the calories in. So we have all this rapid unwanted fat gain, but I think 
laying down those expectations is going to be super important as far as that communication process. Like you're going to gain a little bit of weight. You're going to feel uncomfortable, but it's okay. We can try to offset those feelings with, you know, using that extra food to train really hard Mm -hmm. and then hopefully putting on some um, muscle mass and, and then essentially like trying to recomp body composition with being a little bit leaner at a higher body weight because we're able to eat enough because we can train hard and we're able to put on muscle because we can train hard. Um, so that cycle and that balance is, um, it takes a long time to achieve, but it's absolutely worth it. If you are someone who feels like you're constantly eating, you know, a quarter of the amount that you really want to just to maintain a body composition that you're comfortable in. So we're, we're talking about increasing small increments of calories to try to make this uh, deficit trend in the other direction. I'm just curious, where are these calories coming from? And like, are you telling them to eat a little bit more protein? Cause it's like a double-edged sword. It's going to increase their, their yeah. muscle mass. And um, it's, I guess it's more dense, right? So they make them more satiating. So what, what's your thought process on that? Yeah. So um, I'll kind of cover like each macronutrient as far as like how that looks like when we're trying to reverse diet people up and Mm -hmm. and increase metabolic capacity. So when it comes to protein, um, you said it, protein is the densest macro. It's going to be, it's essentially, it's going to have the greatest effect on metabolic rate because the composition of protein, it's made up of all these amino acids. So your body is going to do a lot more work to break all of those amino acids up. Um, whereas a carb is a much more of a, a simple compound as well as a fat essentially. So I typically like to increase protein. Um, there is a lot of research out there that basically says protein is no more effective at, with uh, increasing muscle protein synthesis than if you do anything more than 1.6 grams of kilogram of body weight. So I don't really like to push protein to like three grams per kilo if someone is like just not super comfortable with eating that much protein. So my max for most people is 1.6 grams per kilo of body weight. Um, but for the most part, that's it's already that high already, especially in the deficit because we want to keep protein high because it's the most satiating macro. Um, But when it comes to increasing the other two throughout the reverse diet process, I'll typically, and again, it depends on the person, what the person enjoys, but most people will um, prefer an increase in carbohydrates so that they're feeling better in training um, because that's kind of our primary focus when it comes to no longer being in a, a diet phase is, okay, now let's really put all of our focus on performance, you know, Uh, hitting bigger numbers on the bar and things like that. So I'll essentially increase carbohydrates more often than I do fats. Also, fats are, you know, way more denser in calories. So increasing that faster than carbs, you're likely just going to be in a surplus a lot quicker and gain fat a little bit quicker. You could obviously go the other way with increasing fats more often than carbs, but you would just have to be a little bit more conservative with the amount of fats you're increasing. Um, but I'll essentially, it, again, it depends on the person, but on average, I'll increase someone's carbs out of a diet anywhere from like 10 to 30 grams of carbs per week, depending on how their weight responds. Because again, we want to be careful about uh, the rate of weight gain. Um, some people don't mind, some people, they get really uncomfortable. Um, and so it's also a lot of balancing of like making sure someone feels good in their body too, and not, you know, making them feel kind of horrible with too much fat gain at once 
Um, but yeah, so I'll increase anywhere from 10 to 30 grams a week or every other week, depending on how their weight is responding each week. And then fats, um, I'll increase anywhere from like 10 to 15 grams at, you know, every two to four weeks, just because I'm typically more conservative with fats. Mm -hmm. But I do also work with uh, clients who are on ketogenic diets. And then obviously it's pretty much all fat, moderate <laughs> protein, low carb. Um, so yeah, it, it depends on each person, but most people I work with prefer carbs and that's essentially the one I'll increase the most. When it comes to tracking weight loss and just overall body weight, we know we have that daily fluctuation. And I was just curious, do you tell your uh, clients to do a daily check-in with their weight or maybe like a weekly check-in? Because then you're kind of combating the psychological aspect of them seeing that fluctuation and some people don't like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's um, something that, you know, I definitely have to cover with a lot of people. Um, and again, it depends on the person and the situation. But for the most part, I have people weigh in every single day. And what I'll do is, you know, especially if people who are afraid of like seeing that number on the scale, sometimes weighing in every single day kind of um, essentially like numbs out that anxiety around the number because like, oh, it's just like another day and then another number. But the reason why I have my clients weigh in every single day is so that they can see those fluctuations and understand that what we really care about is the weekly average. And because if, if someone weighs in once a week and we just get, you know, their weight on a Saturday, well, I don't know like if they had like an extra gallon of water the day before, if they had like extra sodium and all of those things, or if stress is higher that morning, all of those things can um, come into play when it comes to fluctuations on the scale. So for some people weighing in every day actually makes it a little bit easier and just knowing like, this isn't my true weight. My true weight is essentially like the weekly average of all of these numbers. However, I do have people who really struggle with getting on the scale every day. And so those are the people who I'll try to just have weigh in like one to three times a week, but I'll have to remind them, Hey, this is just a very like quick snapshot of where you are in the week it's not your true weight. So don't put so much value on that number on the scale. But as far as like the psychological approach with weighing in every day versus weighing in a few uh, times a week, definitely varies from person to person. But for the most part, I have my clients weigh in every single day. They know that these numbers don't really mean anything day to day. What matters is the weekly average. Um, and so they can kind of better understand their body and how they respond to specific manipulations in sodium, water, stress, activity um, by seeing that daily weigh-in. You hit on something that's important that a lot of people don't really address head-on when it comes to being in the rat race of being in America. Day in and day out, you're trying to get your job done. It's like that. It's is managing your stress because that does have a large effect on your overall body composition and body weight. And I was just curious, is, do you see this issue amongst your clients and how do you combat it? Yeah, absolutely. There are some people who, whose weights reflect a ton by how stressed they are. Um, and essentially, I will hopefully help work on ways we can manage that stress. Um, because essentially, stress is always going to be a part of life. There's nothing we can do about it and there, it's not going to go anywhere, but how we can approach it is how we manage it and how we handle it. 
So my, my first piece of advice is to try to like change the perspective of whatever that stressor is, you know, kind of seeing it as a challenge rather than a threat. Um, there's a lot of research that shows this as well as like people who change their, how they perceive stress. There's a lot of research on stress perception too, um, essentially will, either be very successful at a specific task or essentially fail a specific task depending on whether they see it as a threat or a challenge that they can potentially overcome. So that's a typical strategy that I work for people or work with on people. Um, For the most part though, I am not a psychologist so I can only say so much and for people who do really really struggle I always recommend seeing a therapist or a psychologist. But for the most part, I try to do kind of like these simple little tips and tricks is let's change the way we perceive this stress. Is this something that could actually potentially make you better down the road? Or, you know, why are we actually viewing it as a threat? Um, And then something I always like to remind people of is, you know, you train and do cardio every day or something like that. Use that time as, you know, time to kind of that be your stress out outlet and relax. Like, I don't want you to see training as a chore that you have to get done every day. Like if you have no other time, if you're a busy parent or someone who works like 12 hours a day and all you have is an hour to yourself in the gym, like make the most of that time to help with those stressors. Um, but essentially that's kind of how I would approach that. That's a large tip. I mean, most people, if they, if they're viewing something as a challenge that, most likely is going to interest them versus this is a threat and why is this happening to me? That's a huge difference in mindset. Absolutely. And, and the way we perceive things um, essentially makes the, how we experience them so different. Um, so yeah, there, I'll have to send you guys some of these studies, but there's plenty of studies on pre- uh, stress perception and kind of controlled trials on, you know, whether someone views something as like, Oh, I can, use this to like try to be better versus someone who is like, this is going to ruin my life. Those people would fail like 90% of the time compared to the other people with the same task. So yeah. Yeah. Like I just wanted, like I appreciate that you took the time to come on here today because this has been very refreshing. Oh, Um, good. (laughs) Yeah. Most of the time when we have these nutrition talks, it kind of just kind of swirls around the same things over and over and over, but you definitely brought a fresh, uh, aspect or approach to this conversation. So I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, nutrition coaching is so much more than just food. I feel like it's, um, also a little bit of mindset, stress management. And, you know, we even look at like hormone panels and things like that, but, um, it's approaching the individual, like as a human and not just as like something to throw macros at and like, see you next week, you know, (laughs) (laughs) make it work. Yeah. (laughs) Where can everyone find you if they want to learn more? Yeah. So I am on Instagram. Um, It's just my name at Karina Naboa. And then uh, I'm not really active on any other social media (laughs) platform. And then um, I'm always open to receiving emails on questions and things like that. And my email can be found at um, K, the letter, and then my last name, which is N-O-B-O-A at gmail.com. I'll write off all of your information and Instagram link to the profile so it's easier for everyone to find you. And honestly, I really enjoyed the episode. If you ever want to come back, just say the word and we'll definitely have you once again. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.